But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. This week's episode of the REACH podcast is sponsored by the Lamstrom Foundation, which is a non-profit organization founded by Major League Soccer goalkeeper and Stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor, Matt Lamson. The mission of the Lamstrom Foundation is to provide difference-making financial, emotional and motivational support to cancer patients and families in all stages of cancer treatment and recovery, as well as to fund proven cancer researchers. So for more information and regular updates on the Lamstrom Foundation and what they're doing, go ahead and follow the Lamstrom Foundation on Facebook or visit lamstrom.com today. Hey, welcome back to episode 26 of the REACH podcast. I'm chatting to Louise Brennan, who is a PhD researcher through Catch ITN, which is a really cool project that funds eight PhD researchers from all over Europe, looking at how technology can improve or aid in, in physical activity and rehabilitation among cancer survivors. So again, like I said, they, they fund eight different researchers in all different sorts of areas. And Louise is particularly interested in, in how this app or, or technology can affect uh, rehabilitation following surgery in, in different cancer patients. So it's a really unique look at how, you know, technology is becoming ever present in the field of cancer care and, and we're experiencing an overload in, in apps and, and technology in healthcare. So to, to be able to bring that into cancer care is really unique too. So it was, it was great to to talk to Louise and hear about the CATCH program, the people they fund, the different type of projects they have and how technology will fit in cancer care both now and in the future as people become more and more comfortable with apps and technology. And the other really cool part of this show is that Louise spends quite a lot of time working on upper limb dysfunction in cancer patients following surgery. So you get a really good hands-on look about what happens and the conversations they have as, as early as the day after surgery with these patients and educating them on how to move and how to really improve their function as soon as they get out of surgery and how, how they can best optimize their recovery through physical therapy and movement. So you get an insight into how Louise programs their, their exercises, what type of exercise they do, and what type of stuff they focus on. So again, it was a really nice blend of, of the research he's doing and also really great hands-on experience of working with cancer patients in the trenches. So really huge thanks to Louise for taking the time out of her day to chat to us, and uh, I hope you enjoy the show. All right, Louise. So listen, thanks a lot again. I know I've been, <laughs> I know I've been giving you the run around the last few weeks, and it's great to finally sit down and catch up with everything. And you've got a really interesting background, and you're and you're part of a really cool project in in the catch. So let's start by just kind of chatting about what your experience is in in the realm of cancer and and what your background is, and then we'll move on to start to talk about this catch program because I think it's a really unique area of uh, of work you're doing. Yeah, sure. Hi, Kiana. Thanks for having me on, and uh, yeah, it's great to it's great to talk with you today. Um, so about my background, um, 
Well, my name's Louise Brennan. I'm a physiotherapist and I'm a researcher. At the moment, I'm doing a PhD in um, cancer survivorship, more specifically in how we can use uh, technology to help rehabilitation after breast cancer surgery. Uh, so I did my training here in Dublin in Trinity College. I graduated in 2009 and pretty soon afterwards I moved over to England and I worked in the NHS there for about seven years, um, mainly working in inpatient rehabilitation. So intensive care, stroke rehab, spinal cord injury, a lot of orthopedic rehab as well. Um, yeah, I really, really enjoyed that work. Uh, I love helping people to, to get moving again, getting them walking again, and just getting them back to loving the things that they do. And yeah, well, across these few years that I was working in the NHS, like anyone working in hospitals, you come across people with a diagnosis of cancer on a daily basis. And it always moved me to see how I would work to rehabilitate them, maybe after a, a massive surgery. Like, uh, you know, when I worked in Kent, we saw a lot of esophagectomies or big colorectal procedures. And, you know, these patients had to do a lot of work just to get home from hospital, just to get fit from that surgery. And then you're thinking, my goodness, like they've got to start their chemotherapy, their radiation therapy. This is only the start of the journey for them. And I always wondered, what what happens for them now? Will they get back to doing what they were doing before? Um, yeah, it, it, so these, you know, cancer patients did always interest me. I always wanted to know about their, a bit more about their journey. I worked in a sarcoma center in England as well. And I got to know a little bit more about the, say, the, the post-operative period um, where we would see the patients after their operations, but also they would come back um, you know, a few months later when they'd finished their treatment and they were a little bit stronger and they were ready to do more, you know, robust rehabilitation. And that gave me a really good insight into how, how weakened you can be from these treatments and how it can affect your ability to get back to school or to get back to work and doing the normal things that you should be doing. Um, I was working mainly with children and adolescents in this service. So just seeing how it affected their lives, it was... It, it, you know, it, it was an eye opener. So after working for seven years in the NHS, I was looking for a new experience. Um, and I saw this post advertised back in Dublin, where I'm from, um, a PhD in cancer survivorship. And I thought, that's perfect. That's what I want to do. I'd always been interested in research. Um, I'm a very inquisitive person. <laughs> I always want to know, you know, professionally why we're doing what we're doing. And I thought this is a great opportunity for me to kind of, you know, blend my naturally inquisitive nature with finding out a little bit more about this cancer survivorship uh, journey. Talk, talk to me about the catch. What is this? Uh, what is catch? How did it, how did it get set up? And, and what do you guys do there? Yeah, sure. So, uh, like I said, our name is Catch ITN, and Catch stands for Cancer Activating Technology for Net Connected Health. And we're a, a PhD training scheme um, where we have eight researchers across Ireland, Denmark, and Spain. And we're all looking at different aspects of how technology can help in cancer rehabilitation and specifically in the physical, more specifically in the physical activity side of cancer rehabilitation. 
Um, we're backed up by um, a collection of research centres, industry partners and clinical partners. And um, and really, you know, you said, how, how was CAT set up? Well, these partners came together. They made an application to, uh, to the EU. So we get our funding from the European Union Horizon 2020 programme. Um, it's called the Marit Sklodowska Curie Grant. So um, the, the universities and the, the industry partners, you know, put together a proposal saying, you know, this is the research that we want to do. And, and that's where the funding came from. And then they found the researchers. Um, so, so that's kind of how it came about. I'm sure you probably want to know what we're actually researching. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure you and all your listeners are familiar with the, the situation that, you know, more and more people are surviving cancer and more and more people are, are living with cancer. But they do have very often an impaired quality of life. And, and you know, there, there are barriers to getting back to the, to the same quality of life that they had before their cancer diagnosis. Um, and what we want to see if we can use technology to help kind of bridge the gap between where they are now and, and where they want to be. Can we use technology to overcome these barriers? Um, it's all about, you know, just getting people back to doing what they love doing um, and doing the things that are meaningful to them. So we have three layers to our research. Um, we've got uh, the first layer is further understanding the problem. Uh, next layer would be developing um, developing technology solutions to the problems. And the third layer is how can we bring these problems or these solutions, rather, how can we bring these tech solutions to market? So um, would you like me to give you a little bit more information about the different projects that we have? Yeah, let's do that. And especially when you're talking about technology, what what type of technology you're talking about? How are you using it? That type of thing. Yeah, sure. Technology is such a it's such a broad term, isn't it? Like um, it can really be anything. Um, obviously, we've kind of narrowed it down to some specifics for our projects. So the first layer of research that we have is about further understanding the problem from the patient perspective. The patient voice is really important in research and cancer. And I believe it has been listened to more now than ever before, but still we need to continuously remind ourselves to consult with, you know, the end user, to consult with the patient. So, you know, to find out what, you know, what their opinion on everything is, what is it that they want? So, um, Oh, we've got three projects happening in this area. So we've got um, Ornella. She's based in uh, Bilbao in Spain. And she's looking at uh, the cancer pathways from a patient perspective. And the technology she's looking at is extremely complicated. It's about deep learning. Um, it's a computer programming thing that usually goes over my head, so I won't even try and explain it. <laughs> but um, essentially looking at the um, the cancer pathways from, from the patient point of view. Um, and then we have uh, Gillian is looking, she's based here in UCD with me, and she's got a psychology background. She's looking at the, um, you know, emotional well-being um, of patients with cancer. We know that 20 to 30% of cancer patients can develop a psychological disorder, and, and certainly quite a lot more will have some kind of emotional distress during this period of time. 
I, I don't know what it's like in America, but in Ireland, the psycho-oncology services are really limited. We're looking at, well, Gillian is looking at whether we can use technology to, to help support patients' well-being. And she's looking at developing some, some, some guidelines of how this can be done. And when we say technology here, it would be, say, like mobile apps or, you know, web applications. And, and then Gabriel, he's over in Seville. He's looking at physical activity um, in cancer survivors and specifically the barriers to physical activity and also how technology can help. And again, this would be things like how a mobile application can help um, with um, promoting and maintaining physical activity. One of the one of the kind of in playing devil's advocate, one of the common concerns people tend to have with with the use of technology is that a lot of cancer yeah. patients are older and they may not be amenable to technology. They may not be used to downloading apps. Do you see that change? And obviously, with with how pervasive technology is now, and people are becoming a lot more accustomed to it, to it, you you see that shift kind of changing in terms of how people approach technology and how comfortable uh, people would be in terms of using these apps? Yeah, that's a really good point. There is a, a proportion of the population who aren't comfortable with using apps, although that proportion is getting smaller and smaller. Uh, 70% of Irish people have smartphones, and I believe 77% of Americans do. Um, that's still a lot of people who don't have it, though. And it's important that whatever we do develop is accessible that you are delivering equal care. So it's not a good idea to develop something that is not accessible for a large proportion of the population. But I mean, two ways I think about this, first of all, is that in a research stage, what we do in research takes quite a few years to come into the actual market. So if we are developing something now, hopefully in five years or 10 years, that proportion of people who are happy with technology and with smartphones is gonna be greater. And the other thing is about always linking back to the user, always linking back to like, so for example, if you're developing um, an application, you're looking at its usability all the way through. You're looking about what do people actually want? Um, is this application intuitive? You and I, and some of your listeners might know that if you press a cogwheel, that takes you to the settings menu, but not everyone knows that. So so you're constantly linking back with the people who that who you hope will be using your your intervention to to make sure that they understand what's going on, that it's as user friendly as possible. Yeah, this is not the time to overcomplicate things with fancy designs. It's, you know, the end goal is that people will use it. And I always think the idea of doing this technology or using this technology is to overcome barriers. So don't create more barriers by having complicated designs or something that requires you to put in loads of loads of data, you know, input every activity you've done of the day or everything you've eaten, that's creating more barriers, really. So, yeah, keep it as simple as possible. Hopefully you'll reach as many people as possible then. So is it is it a case where you are looking to maybe build an app that you do input, you know, maybe what your disease is, what your what your cancer site is, what your treatment is, and then you're looking to develop a, an exercise program off of that? Or what sort of, when you're talking about apps, what... What are they opening up? What are they seeing? And, and what are they getting out of this app? Yeah, so um, each of us has, is you know, like I say, is working on a different project. Um, we're definitely aware that, you know, with cancer, um, with cancer care, you need to be holistic. Ultimately, if you, for a really good quality cancer application, 
uh, you know, or intervention, you want to have something that is almost like a one-stop shop that would give them education, uh, motivation, information on, say, nutrition, uh, well-being, physical activity. We're at the really early stages now. Um, It's important that whatever we develop is evidence-based. And we do need to do that one step at a time because... Otherwise, if we if we develop something holistic, we'll never really know what aspect of it is that, you know, that is making uh, the positive change. So we're developing one aspect at a time. So the reason I say that is if you think that what we're doing sounds very narrow, it just it just has to be that way for now. Um, and hopefully it'll build into something greater. For example, what I'm looking at and I'm in the, the second layer of catch, which is about developing solutions to problems that are already well known. Well, one of the kind of problems that we come across a lot in cancer rehabilitation is shoulder girdle dysfunction after breast cancer surgery. And I want to, um, I'm looking at developing a, a mobile app for for patients to use after their surgery that will have education, um, you know, about their exercises, about lymphedema prevention, and it will have their exercises written down for them. And, and also it's going to have a biofeedback component so it will give them information on, on, on how they're doing their exercise, you know, count the repetitions for them, maybe give them some information on their technique as well. So um, so I guess that's that's one example of, of one specific thing that it will be developed within CATCH. A, quite a simple module. For now, it's only doing that one thing. But if we can if we can prove the the efficacy and the feasibility of that, hopefully it can grow into something greater. It's really cool because... Uh... I actually have a mate here at Ohio State that we've we've always gone back and forth and said, you know, it would be great to have some sort of app where you can throw in, you know, what cancer you have, what treatment you had, your surgery and all that information and it and it spits out this this uh program that, that kinda is tailored to you and, and it, the stuff that you are doing is like I said, it's narrow but when you come together and put that all together in a few years, that's going to be some powerful, powerful stuff in terms of improving the way exercise is prescribed. And talk about scalability. You know, people go back and forth on technology in terms of its depth. Um, you know, you look at some of the work and, and we talk about supervised exercise tends to have more efficacy mm. and more, you know, adherence than, than unsupervised exercise. But at the Maybe, same time... Yeah we can't we don't have the manpower to to work with all these people so there's got to be at least an option there while it may not be as good as personal training in a gym of course it's not you know what i mean you have you're coming in to work with a trained professional every day it's going to be a little bit better but you're at least giving people the opportunity to have that and have that education teach them how to how to work through it themselves yeah absolutely um an important thing to note is that I view these as adjuncts to what you and I do in our daily daily lives. A computer program will never replace uh, having a one-on-one session with a professional. But if they can input the information that they want the, the patient to, to work on into a program, and that program helps improve their adherence, that's excellent, you know? Um, cancer is so specific it's not like um certain types of surgery like for example um certain kinds of orth elective orthopedic surgery 
the exercises prescribed after them would be fairly standard. And we don't see that in cancer. You, it, it, everyone is different. Everyone comes into it at a different stage and everyone is, is affected in a very different way. So there'll they'll never be a formula for how we can prescribe exercises. But um, if the professional can work with these technology tools, it means that their patient is getting more support. That's how I see it. If, if the patients aren't, you know, able to rehab as much as they want, it might just be that they need a little bit more support and, and we can give it to them by uh, an, an app that might give them notifications or a little bit of motivation as well. And if it logs how they're doing, um, how, how they're doing their exercises and, and their physiotherapist or their physical therapist can look at that, um, it's kind of an accountability as well. And, and then the other thing is accessibility and, and the quality of treatment. If I live an hour or 90 minutes drive from my nearest cancer specialist centre, that's a massive barrier to me attending an, a group exercise class on a weekly basis or something. Particularly if I'm already travelling up once a week or every day for, for cancer treatment. So it's a way in which we can support people who, who are living further from cancer centres or who perhaps don't have the financial means to to see professionals. But at the end of the day, it's it's an adjunct to what you and I do on a daily basis. Yeah, that's huge. And obviously, the, the you being so open to to acknowledging that it's an adjunct is is huge in terms of of just people being amenable to the idea of an app. But also, like it, you said, the the cost of of cancer treatment, the cancer care alone, is massive. Yeah. And then yeah. throw in rehabilitation and dietary care on top of that, and people just don't. Like you said, people from lower SES or or more rural areas, they don't have the the resources or the finances to to pay a personal trainer three four times a week, you know. And so, having this app that that can supplement that is massive in in just keeping them moving. And I think we could do a better job at selling when we talk about. Um, how powerful exercise in terms of one improving symptoms during or after treatment but two in terms of the the risk of recurrence i think that we say that in such a passing way that we just say you know exercise can reduce the risk of recurrence without really educating patients on you know how devastating this diagnosis was and how torturous treatment can be when we talk about reducing the risk of recurrence, we're talking about you You may reduce the risk of going through all that again in five, ten years down the line of missing work or having to deal with telling your, your family and kids and all that type of stuff. And that's how powerful exercise can be. So, if, like I said, if it's just an option to have an app there that can help them, we need to do, you know, all angles are and all, all areas are welcome in terms of approaching this. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, and it might not be for some people. That's fine. It's, it, you know, but at least if we are, are working on these solutions now in 10 or 20 years when, you know, we're all, most people will be uh, working with these, you know, will be open to these kind of ideas. We'll have experience in using mobile technology. It, it'll it be ready for them. Um, and as for that, you know, selling the benefits of exercise with cancer recurrence, I wonder if people are nervous about saying that it's such a grand statement to make isn't it and I wonder are people apprehensive of of giving false hope or are they delivering the message clearly it it it's an it's an amazing thing that you know there are is some evidence that cancer can 
um, pardon that exercise can reduce the risk of recurrence in some cancers. It almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? So I, I don't I don't know why people don't say it, but I wonder if when you know we talk about kind of evidence based recommendations. The way the way I look at it is we've got our non modifiable risk factors. You got increasing age, you got genetics, family history, all that type of thing. But you've got your modifiable ones. You've got smoking, you've got alcohol use, you've got physical activity. And my perspective is if you have non modifiable risk factors, like you have a genetic mutation or you've got a family history of cancer, chances are your risk of returns are going to be higher. But why not? try and reduce the risk from all other aspects if you can reduce that risk why not and my my perspective is that i can understand where people are a little bit apprehensive in in terms of giving false hope and sure enough there's there's um, people who are unfortunate enough to live active and healthy lives and and have a great diet and still unfortunately have you know a diagnosis of cancer or, or a recurrence and it's not a catch-all where absolutely if you exercise you'll never get cancer but you haven't sold me on a on a big enough reason not to and you know yeah. if, if it if it doesn't hurt it doesn't harm you why not exactly and well it, it's it should be part of public health it's something we should all be doing it, it's such a huge issue we sh- it's we're not doing it enough in school and then we go to work and we're sitting at a desk all day exercise is so enjoyable once you get into it i absolutely love it and if i go a few days without exercising you can tell because i'm not happy <laughs> um it it's so thoroughly enjoyable um and then to think that you get these health and lifestyle benefits from it as well um but there's huge amounts of the population who, who don't enjoy it yet, who haven't found that thing that they love to do, that thing that clicks with them. They're like, oh, I've tried going to the gym. I didn't like it. I was It was sore afterwards. Why would I do that again? Or I don't like getting sweaty. Um, it's it's something that, that we need to look at across the whole population, just making people realize that when you do something you love, it, it's, it doesn't feel like hard work. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny, I was I was thinking about that the other day. I was um I'm coming back from a rotator cuff injury and I was I was also I just destroyed myself. Um considering I'm a I'm a PhD in exercise science, I, I just <laughs> ignore all the evidence on how to train properly. But um I actually I had a sports hernia and then I had a rotator cuff injury. So I was out both upper and body lower upper and lower body exercise and I hadn't worked out in I'd say six months and my mood changed dramatically and especially doing your PhD you know the stress you go under just getting out and going for a run or going to play football with your friends whatever it is um the the relief and the therapeutic aspect of exercise in terms of my anxiety in terms of my mood in terms of my overall well-being I it's been so long since I haven't had that that I forgot what it's like to not have that and you know I, I was going nuts and kind of coming back and, and the same thing is exercise to to get fit is generally not that enjoyable it's it's so much more enjoyable <laughs> yeah. when you are fit you know what I mean there's a lot more emphasis on the process when you're getting fit and just enjoying trying to keep improving day to day but you know now I'm at the point now where I'm back enjoying it and I can go out for a three four mile run 
feel good about it. But a lot of people don't get to that point where mm. they're fit enough to enjoy it. Or like you said, you know, we we research really specific aspects of exercise. I re- research weight training. But when I go out and give information to the public, I'm not saying absolutely everyone should be weight training. Sure, there's some benefits to it. But if you prefer cross-country skiing, if you prefer, you know, racquetball, do what's enjoyable to you. That's going to give you, you know, sure enough, the physical benefits, but the quality of life and the mental aspect is huge too. Yeah, it's true. And and that's got to be part of our jobs if we're working with individuals who who have cancer that we find out, you know, what works for them. They they will might not have the exposure to to the different types of exercise or to what's available in the community. And, you know, being acutely aware of the fact that they might be undergoing the side effects of treatment and fatigue. It, it's easier for us to say that exercise is fun when you don't have chronic fatigue. Yeah. So it is it can be a bit of a um, like a puzzle trying to figure out just what works for someone and what works for someone might be something different each week you know that it might fluctuate depending on how someone's feeling or what kind of side effects they're having at a, a time so that's that's really important I, I you know I've always I think most people who work with exercise would agree that whatever the best exercise is the one that you enjoy because you're going to do it and then you're going to get the benefits from it so we've got to be flexible with what we are advising people to do and prescribing. Yeah, exactly. And kind of you hit the nail on the head there with fatigue. It it remains to be one of the biggest barriers to exercise among cancer patients and survivors because <laughs> with no background, why would they? If, if they feel yeah. so tired that they can't get out of bed, where is that motivation coming from to say, you know what, I can't get out of bed, but I'm going to try to get up and go for a walk or, or go exercise. And they don't, a lot of people who, who come to me and, and want to work with me have that perspective and that no one's ever told me that that it's okay and no one has has the background or experience to say you know I know you're going through fatigue I know it's counterintuitive but give it time this will uh you know reduce your fatigue and it it, it, it takes some it takes them to trust someone with experience and background in the area for them to actually maybe into it and start to see what can happen with it yeah, it's true. And I think that, um, you know, different things work for different people, but I know that a bit of social support helps. So if you if there's a class on that, um, an exercise class for for people undergoing cancer treatment or, or living, you know, living after cancer treatment, that can be really, you know, it can be really effective that you're, I mean, in the Beacon Hospital in Dublin where I work, we have a class called Fit for Life. And that's for, um, you know, open to anybody undergoing cancer treatment or or afterwards and um it's about exercising in a you know a fairly supportive environment um where you've got a physiotherapist there but there's a few people exercising at the same time so there's a sense of accountability a sense you know I've got to go to that class I've signed up for it the physio will be there um and there's a sense of you know you're getting your education as you go through the weeks and also you see other people who are going through what you're you know what you're going through and I think that's a huge part of it because on a daily basis how do you spot the person out there who's who's also having cancer treatment you know when you walk around the supermarket maybe someone is but you can't you can't tell who it is who's going through the same thing as you but if you're attending a class that's for people in the same situation as you or you know 
got you know it it means you can find out a little bit about their experience and how it compares to yours and one of the other you know going back to the technology thing um something that is is can be really beneficial as support on social media there's you know certain twitter groups tweet chats and closed facebook groups um it generally i think the research has found that um individuals with cancer do like social support and do like social support online in a more private way so not not like like i say a, a closed facebook group as opposed to like an open facebook group but they really do benefit from from having that support of other people in the same situation as them yeah and as you're talking about social support one of the one of the things about that that speaks to me is their ability to relate to each other you know we come at them as as people in in our 20s or 30s who study exercise who a lot of us are former athletes um and keeping fit and having a decent diet come fairly natural to us you know what i mean we've been doing it so long so they're kind of looking at us going who are you as as a person in their 20s or 30s who who studies this to tell me what i'm going through or what i should do whereas if you get them in a group with each other and they're experiencing the same side effects of treatment, they're experiencing the same struggles with exercise or diet, and they can kind of help each other problem solve, I think being able to relate to each other is huge in terms of, of just their overall support and, and really trusting each other through that process. Yeah, and um, and also maybe having access to a patient advocate or an expert patient, someone who's few months down the line or a few years down the line that they can say I've been through all this like I I had to do all those exercises for my for my shoulder girdle after the surgery and and you know it's worth it stick with it like I feel so much better you know to someone who's further down the line as well as someone who's at the exact same stage as them could be really helpful yeah exactly and the shoulder girdle and and I know you've had a lot of interest or uh, experience with with upper limb dysfunction after breast cancer surgery and i want to get to that but kind of on sticking with the catch program so obviously the the ultimate goal is to to maybe implement this in a healthcare setting and and push it out across europe or, or the world how do you see that going obviously you know you, you've got three different countries that are involved in this all with much different healthcare systems um, do you see that being a, a barrier to to how well you can kind of roll this out, you know, years down the line when when it comes to that point? Well, the you know the the PhD programs will be running for say three to four years, and and the goal at the end of that is that we've all completed our our own projects, and what happens after that is yet to be determined. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I I say we all. I have I have great ideas of what I'd love to have and everyone probably does but I so I can't say what whether they will all eventually get put together into some you know some great package um but you know if we've delivered eight pieces of evidence on using you know technology in exercise rehabilitation after cancer that's a fantastic achievement in itself um uh as with you know being across the three different countries I think that's you know really a great part of this. Um, one of the problems in research is that we often work in silos. You can be working on a project over here in Ireland and there might be someone in Denmark doing the same thing, but you you might not necessarily know. Um, things like 
uh, like Twitter or going to international conferences, you know, disseminating your your research like that really does obviously help you know what's going on across Europe and across the world. But by linking up, by you know, from the word go, linking up the research that's happening across the three countries, it means we're getting, um, you know, an aspect of what's happening across Europe, um, well, certainly across Spain, Ireland and Denmark, and across different cultures as well, because we see, you know, really different attitudes um, to to all aspects of life between people living in Dublin and people living in the Mediterranean culture of the south of Spain and uh, and certainly over in Denmark as well. So, yeah, so I, I hope that that will be more of a, you know, more of a, an aid than uh, kind of something that will Im- Im- impede the the reach of this research at the end. Sure, and certainly the the low enough cost of an app as opposed to as we said, like a full physio program surely has got to lend itself to, to being more uh, useful in a clinical setting. Yeah, and I, I, I guess like I really want to make it clear that, like like I said, it, it is an, uh, an adjunct to the treatment. But yeah, like we spoke about earlier, if, if it means that someone has to do, say, a few, like say they need to have a series of four physio treatments instead of seven, you know, and and as long as they're getting a good, if not better, outcome out of it, then that's great. And um, one of the drivers for this project is the fact that our current healthcare system is pretty unsustainable. We've got an aging population, greater you know prevalence of chronic disease, less funding, staff shortages. We have to do something different. We have to think, what else can we use to help ourselves? Otherwise, we're not going to be able to deliver quality healthcare. So, so this is taking a different, taking a different track. Connected health is what we call this approach. About um, and that's you know, CAT stands for uh, cancer activating technology through connected health, and and the the approach is about you know looking after the the well being and the health of of an individual and the community. Uh, across the lifespan using technology so if we can use technology to to you know to monitor regularly someone's health their weight you know anything that we can monitor then we catch things earlier and it's less serious then and and, you know we can keep the population more healthy that's the the kind of paradigm we're looking at at the moment yeah the i mean it's interesting every Every person I talk to from all these different countries, it seems like healthcare everywhere is is really struggling, and it just keeps coming back to the same thing. And and we we are reacting as opposed to being proactive in terms of our our healthcare, and it, it, it's really frustrating. We won't go down that road. We're going to stay. We're going to stay on the on the positive side of things. So you know, you're doing some really <laughs> cool stuff with. Uh, helping people with upper limb dysfunction after breast cancer surgery and you've had uh, yeah. extensive experience in this area so let's talk a little bit about that in in um how did you get started in that area what do you see in terms of dysfunction and what do you commonly prescribe when you're working with these patients i'm working in the beacon hospital in dublin um i'm split between there and university university college dublin or ucd so I have a, a clinical partner and I have an academic partner in this uh, in my work. And um, when I'm working the beacon, I'm 
you know, they have a really great cancer center there and they have a breast cancer center. So I'm working with patients there who are either, you know, directly post-op, uh, you know, a lot of, um, you know, directly post-op their, their surgery. So after wide look excision or mastectomy or reconstruction, and then they'll come back to our physiotherapy department for their for their rehab afterwards. So what we see primarily, you know, this, this these surgeries are associated with pain, weakness, stiffness all around the shoulder and the shoulder muscles and the, and the shoulder blade. Um, and of course, you know, with a high risk of lymphedema if some of some or all of the lymph nodes are removed. So, you know, obviously there, there is a lot of upper limb dysfunction. So wh what are you typically prescribing? How are you working around that dysfunction? And um, what do those sessions look like? We'll go see the patient day one post-op and go through education with them, um, go through their exercises with them. This is a difficult time because they're so fatigued. And they after the surgery, they might still be drowsy. There's so much going on. Even if we go back the the second and the third day after the operation, if they are still in, depending what surgery they've had. It's a really, really overwhelming time for the patient. So the main things we want to get across at that stage is that they're getting adequate pain management. They know their preliminary exercises that they that they should be doing and they're aware of any restrictions to their movement. So, for example, if they've got a drain in, they're not lifting their arm above the shoulder height or if there is any... Um, precautions if they've had a reconstruction or something like that. They're the, they're the real crucial things. And when the patient comes back in to have their drain removed, we'll catch up with them. We'll say, okay, now you can start lifting your arm up above the level of the shoulder. Um, and then we'll start working with them in our outpatients department. So you're starting off by, I mean, the really important thing here is the technique. Um, it is quite tempting to want to just try and lift your arm up as high as you can that's what it's all about getting your arm up in the air but actually what it's all about is getting your your scapula or your shoulder blade moving and uh moving correctly and getting the the position of the shoulder blade right so we'll spend a bit of time you know working on the what we call the traps of the scapula so the muscles that draw your shoulder blades together and get them in a nice upright posture um almost as if your shoulder blades are going to tuck down into your back pockets and getting we, you know we'll educate the patient how to do that how to to set their scapulae as we call it and from there you start moving the arm um there's plenty of evidence and um, and and you you'll see it with patients as well that are a few years after surgery for breast cancer that they often have um like a study around they they may have a rounded posture where it looks like their shoulder blade is maybe pulled forwards um and and this is because the the the, the muscles that draw the scapula back haven't been you know uh they're not as strong as they should be the posture isn't right and it's really important that we get that correct. If it's not just about aesthetics, you know, the posture. If if you have poor posture, your movement will be reduced, and and you could be at risk of developing, say, shoulder impingement. So it's really key that we start off with this, uh, with developing normal movement patterns. Um. So number one is just get the get the scapula set. Then you're getting the shoulder joint moving, and then once 
the patient is ready, and this may be six weeks down the line, or you might want to check with that consultant first, you're starting to load the, the muscles around the shoulder joints. So we're starting to do some strengthening exercises then. Really gentle stuff, maybe using a TheraBand, or very, very light weights. Um, nothing that will cause pain. That's not what we're looking for here at all. Um, and just gently increasing that uh, strengthening over over the weeks to come and and when you feel that the patient is getting the, the full movement and the strength back you're making sure that they've got somewhere to go after that you if you don't want to just set them free you want to yeah. make sure that they're going to continue their exercise um whether that's through pilates or through a gym or something like that and all the while that the physiotherapist is working um with the patient you're you know, it's a really great opportunity. You've got these one-on-one -on -one sessions. You're 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 making sure that they've got their lymphedema prevention information, um, monitoring their limb volume, whether they need a garment or not. You know, you're catching these things early, and also crucially, as we've been talking about, the physical activity. Saying to your patient, "Are you getting out? Are you doing walking, cycling, whatever it is that they that they want to do?" It's a, it's a really really great opportunity to have some chats with your patient about that. Even just having that has, for me at least, the, the scope of the field has changed so much in the last five to ten years where you would have had the recommendation to to rest a lot more than than what's going on right now. You know, so the stuff that you're doing is really progressive and you kind of talked about how, I mean, any sort of rehab is really, it can be painful, it can be frustrating it can be you know long to to get that function back but the importance of doing that immediately after surgery versus waiting six twelve months and then you got build up a scar tissue and then you have more dysfunction uh it's it's critical to start that rehab as soon as as possible to to increase the chances of having better outcomes down the line and then you were kind of saying as well have an upper body dysfunction or, or you know whatever the affected arm is and you're going through rehab for that arm doesn't preclude you from other exercise if if it, if it's not affecting that arm it doesn't preclude you from going to, for a walk with your family going for it you know getting on a spin bike and doing what you can do and having that kind of comprehensive exercise program again it just accelerates that recovery down the line to where we are getting you back to as normal function as possible we are getting you back to you know people forget that uh, pe these these people need to get back to work and they need their arms and they need their body to work properly so it's it's not just in terms of fitness this is actually to help you in your day-to-day -day life yeah that's right um and it, it, it's so much easier said than done isn't it one of the the things that we find is that there are, you know, we spoke about the barriers to physical uh, physical activity and patients when they're, you know, when they are diagnosed with breast cancer, it's quite a quick turnaround from diagnosis to surgery. And then you're more or less straight into your chemo and radiation therapy. And it can, and like you say, trying to keep on top of work or studies or looking after a family member or children, there's so much going on. And sometimes these exercises, they're not number one on the patient's list of things to do. And, you know, that's that's the way, if that's the way it is, and that's the way it is. And um, all we can do is emphasize how important they are. But, you know, I think 
sometimes some people put other people before themselves. Obviously, we see that a lot. Um, and that's where we're thinking, how can we as professionals give the patient a little bit of extra support that they need to make sure that they are getting their exercises done? How can we, you know, tap into their motivations to make sure like, you know, you can't look after anyone else if you're not looking after yourself. So if you don't, if thinking about if the patients aren't doing their exercises now and they develop upper limb dysfunction or lymphedema, it will reduce their ability to do things in the future. Um, it might be about giving them a little bit of education around that. Yeah, exactly. It, it's, it's an incredibly difficult time and it's really easy for us as therapists to say, do these three, four times a day. And the patient's thinking, how on earth? I've barely made it to this appointment. How can I do this three yeah. or four times a day? With your work or with, with Beacon, I suppose, aside from catch, if they're not in your program, is is any sort of physio covered in, in the healthcare system? Are they are they provided with, with sessions or or is this mostly out of pocket for patients who, who aren't a part of that program? Oh, so everything that's happening in the Beacon has already been happening since long before I was there. Yeah, that's they, those therapy services are, are well established. Uh, the Fit for Life class and, and any kind of, you know, they have the physiotherapy department there. So if anybody, whether they've got a cancer diagnosis or any other diagnosis, if if, if they want to be seen by the physiotherapist, that, that can be done. So, so yeah, those those services are already already running. Um, they do have, you know, they've got pretty good services for um, for cancer patients there, and it's not available in many other places. Um, the for example, the the exercise class. There's not too many of them around, unfortunately. Um, there's something similar up in Dublin City University in DCU in the MedEx program. And um, aside from that, there's a few private clinics around. And But we we are lucky, you know, we do have, I know this is a kind of probably controversial statement, but we do have a good healthcare system. In the grand scheme of things, globally, you know, if someone, if there's an, a need, it, it is very often met, but I know many therapists feel that they wish they could do more um, if we had more staff and if I could only spend an extra hour with that patient. Um, so there's always room for improvement, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. So it seems like everything, or for the most part, you know, I know uh, Chris McBurdy is opening some Strive clinics up and down the country, which is really cool to see. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. In terms of my experience, it's one of the first cancer rehab uh focus clinics of of seen so really cool to see that type of uh clinic open and again it's a it's a sign of how far we're progressing and understanding how important rehab is in cancer and uh hopefully it's sign of things to come down the line as as more places like that start to pop open um so with with the catch are you currently recruiting patients do is there people who aren't a part of beacon can they be a part of it or is it just strictly in in the beacon that you're you're working with these people um at the moment i'm not i'm just about to start a study but that's actually on um on healthy um unhealthy participants um so i'm not i'm not doing any studies that are recruiting patients uh, just yet once i start to develop my um my mobile application i will be consulting like i said consulting with patients all the way through to make sure that 
this is something that they want. It's something that they think they'll actually use. How can I make this something that will be of benefit to you? Um, I think we have the other researchers across across the three countries are, I'm not, not certain exactly what stages there are. I think we're more or less just getting getting started with you know doing our with with doing our first studies now we're all within our first year of the phd so um we're all should be starting our first studies around now and uh, there's a you know beacon is not the only uh, clinical site we've got clinical sites in in spain as well where um they'll be getting participants from too so it's really exciting stuff in that you've got eight different projects all kind of starting fairly soon and and uh, hopefully there's there'll be some really cool stuff to come out of it um, so listen, Louise, I I can't thank you enough for chatting. I think the the catch program is is fascinating, and uh, I wish you and all the other students the the best of luck with it. Um, so where can people kind of keep up with with you and what's going on in in the program? Yeah, thanks, Ryan, Kieran. Um, you know we love we love talking about catch. We love spreading the message. So if anyone wants to talk to us, um, well, our website is uh, catchitn.eu. And uh, yeah, we're all on Twitter, LinkedIn. My Twitter is um, at Louise underscore Brennan underscore. Um, and Catch is on Twitter as well. It's at Catch underscore ITN. And um, yeah, if anyone wants to talk or has doing something similar or has any questions, yeah, just get in touch and it'd be great to, to make more connections in this field. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, uh, we talk about technology, I'm sure. 5, 10, 15 years from now, you're, you're starting at the perfect point because all the people that, that aren't comfortable with will be weeding them out. So <laughs> it will be more pervasive than ever. So listen, Louise, thanks Well, hopefully again. more people will be learning, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, my, my dad is absolutely useless. I mean, he still finger points and he's using one eye. So um, oh. we're, we'll try and, and educate them as well. Yeah, we'll work on him. <laughs> All right, Louise, listen, thanks a lot for stopping by and chatting. All right, it's been a pleasure, Kieran. Great to talk to you.